0: You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. uh, If you were here with us yesterday for a Good Neighbor Day, I want to say thank you for serving our city. So well, if uh, you're not aware, we did something, uh, a city service event yesterday where we had uh, a ton of people sign up to serve, uh, hand out care bags to those in need, clean up trash, pray for folks. We ran out of slots because so many people came and wanted to serve. And I want to show you a picture from the event. You can go ahead and put the picture on the screen. That's uh, one of our pastors holding a uh, rat that he found as he was picking up trash. And do you see the size of that thing? It's like a possum. I texted one of my friends in the south that picture and he was like, "Fire up the grill, baby. We're having dinner tonight." Like you could feed a family with that thing. Um yeah, so I mean it was great to to serve our city and clean up a little bit. I'm glad glad you were there if you were and um yeah, excited to do more stuff like that in the future. But anyway, seeing um all the trash that our people gathered. I saw pictures of like a dumpster full of trash that they had gathered around the city. And cleaned up. And I saw that rat. It got me thinking about trash. Um, yeah, I have a bag of trash right here. And I want you to imagine this is your living room, right in the middle of your floor. And we have all this trash in the middle of your floor. And that rat, that picture I just showed you, is also there. I wanted to really bring the rat, but I know you guys, many of you, would just run out. So I didn't bring the rat. But just imagine there's a rat there and all this. You see all this trash, and this is your living room. And the point of our text this morning is, I think there are a lot of people that go to church every Sunday, sing a few songs like we just did, even put maybe an offering in the offering box. You do your religious routine, right, while the whole time avoiding the mess that's in the middle of your heart, the real sin that God wants to get to. It's almost as if this was your house, living room, and like you're, you're polishing over here and dusting over here and like vacuuming over here. And you sit back and you look at the whole room and you're like, <sighs> it's perfect. Meanwhile, there's a dead rat right in the middle of the floor. And that's what it's like to come to church and to come to gatherings like this and to ignore the rebellion that's going on in your life, the sin in your heart, and not to face it and to talk to God about it. You know, In Isaiah chapter one, God says, I'm so done with your songs. I'm so done with your gatherings. I'm so finished with your religious activities. What I want you to do is to deal with your sin. And this morning, it's my hope that we well, you can just be honest about what's going on here and to face it today. And that's what David does in 2 Samuel 12. He's been, he did something so wicked, so wrong. And in this chapter, he comes face to face with it. The question for you today is not, do you have trash in your house? We talked about this last week. Everyone does. We all have stuff we're dealing with, all things we're doing. Uh, all of us have things that we've done that are wrong. The question that matters, the question that makes all the difference is, what are you doing with the trash in your heart and in your house? How are you dealing with it? And your answer to that question is the difference between life and death, friend. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That is a double promise. If you're not dealing with the mess, you will not prosper. You will not live a blessed life. But if you confess and forsake your sin, God's ready to give mercy. He's more ready to give mercy. He's quicker to give mercy than we are to repent. And 2 Samuel 12, David confesses and repents. Now, three lessons I want us to learn today. Uh, that we, at least three that we can learn from this text. I, I'm just going to focus on these three. Number one, I want us to see the shrewdness of confrontation. Number two, the assurance of pardon, and thirdly, the hope of resurrection. Let's start with number one, the shrewdness of confrontation, and we learn this uh, through the story of Nathan, who is just a baller. He don't care what anyone thinks. If you uh, weren't here last week, what happened was David is the king over all of Israel, the most powerful, probably the most powerful man in the world. He uh, is in the middle of a war with Ammon. But he's not fighting the war. He's chilling at the palace. David the the warrior has become David the vacationer. And while he's chilling at the palace, while all his people are out fighting, he's on his roof and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. A woman named Bathsheba. You probably know this story. It's a pretty popular story. What does he do? He lets his flesh lead. He says, bring her to me. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. And he freaks out. So, to cover it up, he kills Uriah, one of his best friends, a man who risked his life for David. Then he marries Bathsheba and forgets about the whole incident. But God sees the rat in the living room. So we pick up a year after this cover-up. And we know it's a year because the child from the affair has just been born. And back in those ancient times, it took nine months for a mom to have a baby. At least that's what I learned in seminary. David's moved on. He's forgotten about what's happened. It's kind of like, you know, when you're a kid, like you do something really bad, but you tell your parents when you're like 19 about something you did when you're 15, and you're like, what are you going to do, punish me now? Like, I think David's thinking like, hey, I uh, I don't deal with it now, God will forget about it. But take a look at what God does. He sends Nathan the prophet, and because Nathan is the prophet of God, what do you expect him to say to David. When he enters into David's courtroom, you kind of expect him to come in thunderously to David, saying, liar, murderer, adulterer, sinner, right away. But that's not what Nathan does. He does something different. He says to David, I would like to talk to you about a case, O great king, a case of a rich man and a poor man. Now, that will only make sense if you understand that there is no separation of powers in like the 6th century B.C. in Israel There's no executive branch, legislative branch, and judicial branch. Like, the king is all the branches. He decides all the cases. He was the Supreme Court. So it was the king's job to hear the hardest cases and to rule as to what is right and just. So Nathan comes in and says, Your Honor, I have a case I would like to consult with you about. David sat and listened to the cases he often did. And here is the case. Nathan says, There was a rich man with many flocks and herds, more than he can count. And there was a poor man with only one little lamb. And that little lamb was like a member of that poor man's family. That lamb grew up with that man's children. It was like a daughter to him. In fact, the man slept with this little lamb in his arms. And the rich man received a traveler. And in ancient times, hospitality was a significant virtue. Whenever a traveler came to your house, you were required to prepare a meal for them. But the owner, the rich man, did not want to spare the expense of a slaughtered lamb. So he takes the lamb of this poor rich man, excuse me, this poor man, and slaughters it and feeds it to the traveler. Either the rich man steals it outright or uses his power somehow to take it from the poor man. Now, O king, says Nathan, what should be done to this man? And David gives his judgment. He says, first, one of the things he says is, And this fits in perfectly with the Old Testament law. He says the man must pay four times what he has stolen. That was custom in the Mosaic law. If you stole something, you pay fourfold. But the other judgment David makes is not in in the Bible. He says, It says that David burned with anger and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, which is a remarkable oath, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this, Deserves to die. And actually, if you think about it, that's a bit excessive. There's nothing in the Old Testament that says stealing livestock is deserving of capital punishment. But David is over the top. He's furious. He wants the man strung up and killed. Why? Because oftentimes, when someone has undealt with guilt they become excessively judgmental to others. They become overly harsh with other people's sin to, in a sense, compensate for the guilt they feel deep down in their heart. Perhaps the reason our society is so quick to condemn and to judge and to cancel the guilty, even those who have done horrible things, they're ruthless because of the inner murmur of guilt and shame that they feel, and the only way to silence that guilt is to put the spotlight of judgment on someone else. Those who yield a gavel judging and harshly condemning others really are usually just trying to silence the guilt and insecurity they feel about unconfessed and undealt with sin they got going on. And because David knows in his conscience, really he's a murderer, he's a liar, he's a thief, he's done something wrong, but here suddenly he wants to be a champion of justice? How hypocritical. He flares with anger. And by condemning this rich man, he really is condemning himself. But I want you to notice, Nathan started out carefully, very quietly. He says to David, let me tell you about this case. And when David says, that man ought to die, then Nathan knows at that point he has him trapped. You know why? Because Nathan knows that David's inordinate anger towards lamb stealing was really the semi-conscious eruption of guilt in his own heart. His own guilt is starting to grab him. And that's the reason David is so furious at this story. Does this man think there's no justice in my kingdom, says David? Who is this man? Bring him to me. He will die. And in the most direct application of a sermon ever, Nathan says, you, you are that man. There was ever a moment in the Old Testament to drop a mic, this was it. Nathan dropped the scroll. Now, excuse my dad joke. Why, why is this shrewd? So this is the shrewdness of confrontation. I want you to notice something extremely important as you read this story. Notice, you are the man was not the introduction, it was the conclusion. So what's that mean? It means a lot, here's what it means. David was a liar, David was an adulterer, David was a murderer, so why is, if this man, Nathan, is the prophet of God, bringing the word of God, why didn't he just burst into the courtroom saying, liar, murderer, adulterer, you are the man! Why didn't he do that? Was it because he was a coward? Why beat around the bush? Why tell this little story of a rich man and poor man and lambs? Is he just beating around the bush? Is he afraid to come out and say it? Does he lack courage? No, Nathan doesn't lack courage. What's happening? Nathan is the prophet of God, and he is reflecting the grace of God. And when there's any hope at all of persuasion, God goes for conviction and conversion, not condemnation. God never denounces somebody in such a way that sets up the person being denounced for failure. It's very easy to condemn somebody in such a way that they just raise up all their defense mechanisms and don't hear anything you're saying. And there's no way they repent. Because you're just yelling at them. Listen, it glorifies God when you tell somebody the truth about sin. But it glorifies God more if you tell someone the truth about sin and they repent. And if you condemn somebody, if you come out yelling at them, That makes what you're saying so offensive that it's almost impossible for that person to repent. You're being self-righteous. You're not on God's side. You're not a vehicle for the subtle, trued grace of God. After all, John 3.17 says, Jesus himself did not come into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came gentle and lowly Sinners felt comfortable around him. Did he he hide the truth? No. But he earned their trust. And he said it in a way that they would actually hear it. Nathan is following the method of our Savior. Now listen, why tell the story? He tells the story because nobody sins to the degree that David is sinning without spinning a web of rationalizations and defense mechanisms and self-deceptions. Convincing yourself what you're doing is okay. Let me show you what happens. In, In fact, David's a perfect example of how it happens. You sacrifice a great deal in your life. You're misunderstood by the people you love. You feel like you have no life of your own. You're facing opposition constantly. You're enduring endless criticism, especially if you have a public role of some sort. And because So much of the criticism you you receive is unfair and and false. You feel wrong. And because you're suffering and because you're giving of yourself so much, because you're exhausted, deep inside the seed of self-pity grows and self-righteousness grows. Nobody knows what I have to put up with. Nobody knows the sacrifices I've had to make. Nobody understands what I've been through. And then you're on the roof. along comes Bathsheba. Along comes the temptation, whatever it is. And suddenly it sprouts. And you say, I deserve this. All the sacrifices I've made, all the good I've done for God, I deserve this. And then once it's done, you cover it up thinking, well, they wouldn't understand. And it's not that big a deal. Which is literally what David says to his general, Joab. Don't let the the death of Uriah bother you. It's war. He's creating a defense mechanism of a false reality to justify his sin. So if you come in screaming, liar, adulterer, murderer, I don't want to hear it. That's the kind of delusional thought people in rebellion develop. And Nathan knows if I come out guns blazing, it's not going to do anything. You don't start out with, you are the man. You end with it. You don't start out with condemnation. You start out with grace. And that's why those people whose primary evangelism strategy is, you're going to hell signs, like the Westboro Baptist Church. Those who brutally call out other people's sins without any sense of how it's received. They go to bed at night resting well. I told the truth. I did my job. Yeah, no one listened to me, they threw me out of the place, but, but I did my job. Yeah, you told them the truth, but you did it in such a way that no one would ever receive it. God goes for conviction and conversion rather than condemnation. Whenever there's any hope of conviction, conversion, or persuasion. Therefore, Nathan was shrewd with the grace of God. He comes to David and disarms him with this story. He gets David to his place where his shields are down. He puts his self-defense mechanisms down. And then when Nathan has the chance... He tells him the blunt, honest truth. He takes his time. He disarms. He doesn't aggravate, because he's after the transformation of David. He's not just trying to check off evangelism from his to-do list. So, what's this mean for our lives? Why does this matter to us? Here's what I would encourage you to do from this story: number one, be a Nathan, and number two, go get some Nathans. Be a Nathan. Go get some Nathans. Now, what do I mean by be a Nathan? You've got friends, you've got family who have deep flaws. They have sins that are hurting themselves and others. And their other friends are too scared to tell them. But you, go be a Nathan. Be willing to say you are the man or you are the woman. But don't start that way. Be a Nathan. Don't beat people up. Don't rail against them. Don't say, this is wrong and you know it's wrong. Repent or else. There is a way of telling the truth that doesn't honor the truth. It's not in accord with the truth. It turns the truth into a weapon. It turns the truth into something that's not attractive or appealing, but something offensive. Be an Nathan. Your friends need you to be an Nathan. To have the courage and the shrewdness and the love and the graciousness to speak the truth to them in a way they can receive it. And say it in so much love that even if they want to disbelieve you, they won't be able to. Because they sense the goodwill in your heart. They sense the yearning for their good in their heart. So go be a Nathan. And secondly, to our church, I want to encourage you, surround yourself with a few Nathans. Hebrews 3.13 hits this point really well. It says, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He's talking about the defense mechanisms. We deceive ourselves. So surround yourself with Nathans who break through them and speak the truth in your life. The author of Hebrews says, exhort one another. That word exhort means confront one another. Your job as a Christian is to confront your friends in love. The reality is most of your biggest flaws, your biggest sins, the things that are most likely to destroy you, you are not aware of. You are deceiving yourself of how destructive they are. And you need friends that you have given the keys to your life where they can say, hey, this is concerning me. And I love you enough to tell you that. That's what church is supposed to be. Do you have friends like that? Go get them. You can find them here. Join a gospel community. So be a Nathan and go get some Nathans. Second lesson we see is assurance of pardon. The walls of Defense and rationalizations have come crashing down in David's heart. David finally sees the rat in his living room. And he says, I got to deal with this. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now this scene is tied to Psalm 51, one of the most famous psalms in the Bible. Psalm 51 is the most complete expression of repentance in the Bible. I would encourage you to read it later today. Psalm 51 is David's prayer journal after this moment when he's confronted by Nathan. And we see in Psalm 51 that David makes no excuses. He confronts his sin for what it is. I don't know about you, have you ever had an employee that worked for you? And you asked them to do something, they didn't do it? And they just made excuses? Oh yeah, well, you know, I had this thing and I don't know. Like, stop, I don't want to hear it. It just makes you even angrier. You're just justifying your behavior. Or like your own kids, you ask them to do something, and they say, Whoa, 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 you know what I couldn't do this, my brother. Whoa, whoa. Don't you hate that? You know what, I don't want to hear it. But isn't it music to your ears when an employee comes to you and says, I have no excuse. I told you I would do this and I didn't. And I'm so sorry. That was wrong. Why don't you just go, hey, it's all cool. it's all good, man. Or your kid comes to you and says, Dad, I broke your rules. You should punish me. I was wrong. Man, I just want to scoop my kid up in his arms and say, baby, it's okay. That's why David's confession is so beautiful. That's why God loves it so much. And it's why God responds in such mercy. Because David's done making excuses. He's done hiding behind justifications. He owns his wrong. And the reality is, friend, you come in here with wrong on your own too. you got stuff in here that you have not. You're excusing. You're justifying. And God's like, stop stop singing for a second. Own up to what you did. David gives an example for us in verse 4. He says against you you only have i sinned i've done what's evil in your sight he doesn't say the excuses that so many of us are used to using like well god you are the one who put me on that roof and you're the one to let me see that woman it's your fault you knew i'd be tempted he doesn't say well you know my parents really struggled with this and i inherited that trait from them you knew this would be a struggle for me what else did you expect you know, I was going through a really hard time, and all my other wives are ter- terrible. I don't like them. And you brought a good woman in front of me. I just wanted some comfort. Like We, we do this all the time. We come to God with our excuses. All, or even these good things I've done that justify this bad thing. And David is done doing that. He comes humbly to God and says, God, I screwed up. I killed a man. I committed adultery. I lied, I was a bad king. He says in verse four, end of verse four, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment, he's essentially saying, God, you have every reason to punish me. Strike me down now. Verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. You know what, Lord, it's me. The problem is me, I'm sick. It's why I'm doing all this evil. You know what it is? I was sinful at birth. I was a bad embryo. It's no one else's fault. It's in me. That's the starting point of every follower of Jesus or soon-to-be follower of Jesus. A moment of saying, it's me. That's the problem. But then David turns and goes, but God, though I'm evil, you are good. You are compassionate. For some reason, you have has said, you have steadfast love for me. He doesn't say in his repentance journal, God, don't forgive me because I'm not really that bad. No. He doesn't say, God, forgive me because what I did was bad, but I've done all these other good things. No. He says, God, forgive me because you're that good. God, forgive me because you love me that much. Friend, is that how you approach God? Bear. You have no reason to forgive me. But God, I appeal to your loving kindness. Because you're so good, will you forgive me? And in the story after David essentially prays Psalm 51, admits his sin, this is what God responds with. This is the gospel, friends. This is such good news. Verse 13, Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sins. You shall not die. Essentially, you deserve to die, but I have put away your sin. It's gone. I want you to think about that for a second. Imagine if you're Uriah, the man David killed. What, just put away? This guy killed me and slept with my wife, and now it's gone? Imagine if you're Eliab, who was Bathsheba's dad. This man did this to my daughter and my son-in-law, and now it's just put away? Seems unfair. How can you just put away sin? Here's the answer. Eugene Peterson, a preacher, preached a sermon on this text a few years ago, and he said this in his sermon. He said, there's a remarkable verbal resonance of this story of David standing before Nathan and that of Jesus standing before Pilate. Nathan says of David, you are the man. And Pilate says of Jesus, behold the man. And he's right. Two courtrooms, two scenes, 2 Samuel 12, John chapter 19. The courtroom of David and the courtroom of Pontius Pilate. And in both courtrooms, things are flipped. Because in 2 Samuel 12, the man who's in the judgment seat, the king, who's ruling, really is should be in the dock being judged. But in Pilate's courtroom, the man in the stand, the man who's being judged, Jesus, the one who's accused and condemned, really should be in the judgment seat. Well, in 2 Samuel 12, this first situation, God sends a prophet to rectify the situation. In comes Nathan saying, you are the man. And David removes himself from the judgment seat and puts himself in the stand and says, I'm guilty. But in Pilate's courtroom, nobody shows up to put things right. No prophet comes and says to Pilate and the Pharisees, you are the man. It doesn't happen. And on the cross, nobody shows up and Jesus dies forsaken. The judge of the earth, who did nothing wrong, was condemned. Why? So that David's like you and I, when we repent, can receive forgiveness. Because Jesus was condemned in our place. Jesus stood in the stand where we deserve to be, and he died so that we can live. There's this really great old movie called the bridge over the river Kwai I saw when I was younger. It's about World War II, about this British colonel and his men who were uh, captured by the Japanese. And the Japanese forced them to uh, build a bridge over the strategic river, the river Kwai. And many of the soldiers don't want to help the Japanese, but this one British colonel feels out a sense of personal pride, I, I, I need to build this bridge. And in doing so, building this bridge for the Japanese as a prisoner, he's actually betraying his country. He's helping the enemy and he's blind to it. But at the very end of the movie, this colonel has a literal, you are the man, experience. At the very end of the movie, one of his friends dies in the river because of this colonel's work, and the friend, as he's dying in the river, looks up at the colonel and says, you! And the colonel, racked with guilt, says, what have I done? I've killed my countrymen, and I'm hurting my country just like David. You know what the colonel does, though? On the bridge, he turns and runs to the other end of the bridge through a storm of bullets and bombs and mortars and dies atoning for his sins. He falls on a detonator at the end of the bridge and blows the entire thing up. He literally dies for his wrongs. He atones for what he did. And friends, the gospel is that Jesus said, I'll cross the bridge for you. I'll run through the bullets and the mortars. You don't need to atone for your own sin. All you need to do is repent and entrust I already did. Jesus was condemned in our place. And your repentance, you acknowledging honestly your sin and leaning on his mercy, accesses all his grace. Friend, you don't have to go through the bullets. Jesus already did. And that's how you can be assured of pardon by running to Christ today. So, we've seen the shrewdness of confrontation. Be a Nathan, go get some Nathans. Secondly, we've seen the assurance of pardon. Listen, this is Baltimore City. There's 300 murders a year in our city about. There's a lot of evil going on in our city. It's very likely that there are some people in this room who have done some horrible things. Listen, you may, be, you may have been a hitman or maybe a hitman in a game. This still applies to you. It doesn't matter what you've done. What David did was probably worse. But you can be assured of pardon if you come to Christ. The Westminster Confession says, as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it cannot bring that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Last point. I wish we had more time to unpack this. This is a gold mine, this second half of chapter 12, but I'm just going to share one brief lesson as we reflect on the end of 12. So David is forgiven. His sins are put away. He's confronted the rat in his life. And then David and Bathsheba have gotten married. They have a baby. And after Nathan confronts David, and he's convicted, God says to David, I'm going to strike the son of this affair, and this little boy falls fatally ill and he dies. And we're told that when David goes through this grief process, verse 16, he got on the floor. He was in such agony. They couldn't get David up off the floor. They could never get him up. And this story reminds me of a woman named Susan Cohen uh, when TW flight 800 crashed which was the third deadliest flight crash in US history on the seventh anniversary of that crash Time magazine ran an article is a really short one-page essay by Susan Cohen who had lost her only child her daughter in the plane wreck and she in her one-page essay she writes about what she went through and it's so striking. It's so similar to what David's going through here as he, he grieves the, the death of his child. Susan Cohen says that when she was told the news of her daughter, she says, if I had a gun, I would have shot myself. But all I could do was cry, scream, and crawl along the floor of my motel. Same thing as David. All he could do was cry, scream, and crawl along the floor. In fact, in Psalm 32, which is another one of David's prayers connected to this incident, David says, my bones are wasting away. I'm groaning all day long. God's hand is heavy upon me. My strength is dried up. He talks about the fact that times like this just feels like you can't even get up. All I could do, Susan Cohen says, was scream, cry, and crawl along the floor of my motel. I can't get up. And any parent who's gone through the loss of a child or deep grief knows what this feeling is like. But what's fascinating is if you read this article in Time Magazine in the end, it says, uh, Susan Cohen says, Seven and a half years after the death of her daughter, she has still not gotten up from the floor. And she says, "The, the insurance company kept sending me counselors and they didn't help. They kept saying things like, well, you know, you have memories of your daughter, so you can face the world now. They said, "Uh, there's got to be some good that comes out of her death. They said, it'll get better. And it was all so shallow and superficial that at times she had her husband throw the counselors out of the house. But in the end, she says, I'm still on the floor. Seven and a half years later, I'm living a life of hell, she says. She says. No good has come out of my daughter's death. I can hardly face the day. My suffering, my grief has never gotten better. And yet, we see in this text, somehow, after grieving for seven days, David gets up off the floor. All we know is that he went down and he was desperate, he was hopeless, but then he got back up and he was composed. Now, I'm not saying the grief process should only be seven days. I don't think the text is teaching that. But I'll tell you this. David got something on the floor that Susan Cohen did not. What was it? He got something because he went down weeping and he came back up worshiping. He came up in control. He came up with peace. And more than anything else, this is so interesting. Verse 24, I can't believe this, but... After he got up, he went in and comforted his wife. It doesn't say he tried to comfort her. It says he did comfort her. So what did he get down there? What did he get down there that he could give to her and heal her? What did he get down there that could heal him? Here it is. A truth so powerful, so life-changing, that when David learned this on the floor, he was able to get back up. And this was to the shock of his servants. His servants said, you weren't weren't eating, you were crying, you were groaning, and now all of a sudden you're feasting and worshiping. What's happening? And if you know the same thing, you'll be able to get up too. Now I should say, to, to know this does not keep you off the floor. There is no truth in the Bible that I can share with you that will keep you from suffering. When Jesus Christ saw his friend Lazarus Lazarus dead. It doesn't say Jesus stopped everyone and said, everyone, I have a sermon. I have a biblical truth to get you to stop suffering. No, when Jesus saw Lazarus dead, he wept. He went on the floor. He grieved with everyone else. So to know this truth does not keep you off the floor, but it will help you get up when you're there. Here it is. The servants asked David, David, You were just wailing and weeping, but now you're eating eating and worshiping. What happened? Verse 23, the end of the verse. David talking about his little boy who has just died. says, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David says about his dead little son, he's not coming back. But I'll get to go to him one day. The truth that got David off the floor is the hope of resurrection. You see, when David was on the ground, he understood, I'm never gonna hold my kid again, but one day I'll get to meet him again. Could you imagine having Susan go in right here next to me and telling Susan, Susan, on the other end of that hallway, you can't see her, she's right over there, is your daughter. She never died. She's waiting for you right there. Do you think that would get Susan off the floor? Some of you know that my mom has early onset Alzheimer's. She was diagnosed about five years ago. And it's been a slow drip of the decaying of her mind and about six months ago, right before I was about to preach on Sunday morning, I had a call from my family saying, your mom's about to die. And that was actually the first time in six months I was able to see her because of COVID. You're not allowed to go in nursing homes. So I saw, they literally only let me talk to her for five minutes in the hospital. She eventually recovered. And I still haven't been able to see her much. And to the point where on Friday, I, I went to the nursing home she's at. And they won't let you in the nursing home, but you can... I I literally went to the window outside and, like, tried to talk to her through the window. And you can't tell anyone this, but the nurse let me break a rule. She slightly opened the window, which are, are bolted shut, and let me reach my hand in and touch my mom's hand. And... As I'm trying to talk to my mom through the window for the first time in six months, since she almost died, she had a master's degree in counseling. She ran marathons. She was a beast. She raised me by herself. She's very sharp. And as I'm holding her hand, she's moaning and screaming, unable to articulate any words at all. And the words just can't reach the horror, describe the horror of what that was like. It was almost as if she was screaming, yelling, get me out of here, save me. I feel like there's nothing I can do, like, the nursing home is the only place she can get the care she needs. And she's shaking and screaming, and the nurse is literally pulling her from the window, because she's gonna hurt herself. And my stepdad, her husband, so broken, he has to turn and walk away. He can't stand seeing his wife like this. And I'm seeing like my mom. (laughs) Just boning in pain and sadness. And I literally fall onto the grass crying I can't even look anymore. And I didn't want to get up. There's nothing I could do if she's gone. And I just would rock back and forth saying to myself, she's not coming back. But one day I'll go to her. That's the only thing I have. She's not coming back. But one day I'll go to her. I got up, and I held her hand, and I said, bye, Mom, I love you, like six times. And after the six times, she said, bye, Adam, I love you. And the nurse went, did you just hear that? That's the first sentence she said in months. She knows it's you, just like the grace of God to experience that. And I squeezed her hand and told her, can you say that one more time? friend, I don't know what you've been through, I don't know who you've lost, or what pain you have. But the hope of Jesus Christ promises us that even though we lose the ones we love, if they're in him, we will go to them. And that's the hope of the gospel. And all you need to do is acknowledge, I got a mess right here in my labor room. God, I'm so wicked and I throw myself on your grace. And he promises us hope of the resurrection. You may have lost your child, you may have lost your mom, you may have lost your marriage, but Jesus says all sad things will come untrue in the resurrection. Would you pray with me? Father, We need hope today. I need hope today. I see my mom broken and dying, her brain slowly shrinking, and I can't even stand the thought. Just listen to voicemails thinking of how she used to be. And broken over who she is right now, she's essentially gone. And I know there are people in this room, Lord, who are dealing with brokenness and loss and sadness today, especially in the middle of a pandemic. Give us hope of the resurrection, God. Remind us that you were the first to defeat death, the first among many brothers, and soon we will follow you. And none of us in Christ will really die. We'll just nap and wake up with you. And may that reality, may that truth spur us to hope today. May we get up and worship today. May we feast today, even amidst our sadness. Because Lord, we know you will make all sad things untrue. Help us to be Nathans. Give us some Nathans. Remind us of the assurance of your pardon. And give us hope today in the resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church podcast.